anybody ever seen the movie Stranger Than Paradise besides me? It's this weird, absurd, kind of quirky, independent, I guess experimental film would be their best way to describe it, by Jim Jarmusch, who made a lot of weird movies, but a lot of weird movies that a lot of people liked. Anyway, this is a black and white film that is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I don't mean beautiful in a, you know, flowers and color and all of that. I mean beautiful in the sense of the way the shots are framed. They're like these still photographs, black and white photographs. And yet the characters, it's, it's funny because I don't remember the story very well at all, but the characters, all three of the main characters are totally vivid for me. I guess I'm thinking about that because I'm thinking about like experimental film and experimental theater because this is going to be an experimental podcast. And what I mean by that is that it's not going to be like any other episode of Humanize Me. A few months ago, right on the heels of the Roe versus Wade decision being overturned, I got an email from a couple of listeners, a married couple, who wanted to share their story of abortion with me. And they wrote enough in the email that I could tell they were good people, our kind of people, humane people. And I didn't really know what their angle was. And you know, and the thing is like I'm not really interested in being one of those voices that comments on the news 15 seconds after it happens. That kind of is in that cut and thrust of the conversation that's always going on and doesn't seem to ever really lead anywhere good. I, I don't really want to be that guy, but I do feel like I want to be part of a, a more nuanced conversation, a slower conversation about what matters and how we should live our lives. And, and yeah, how we should organize our society. And abortion is part of that. And the Supreme Court is part of that. And all of this stuff is part of that. And so after these guys wrote to me, I knew I wanted to talk to them just because I think I locked into an abortion position years ago and haven't really thought that much about it. And I could tell that these guys were coming at the coming at the reality of abortion from a very personal place, from another side. I don't want to say another side of the issue, but from another angle. And so I talked to John about it. And John said, listen, why don't you reach out to them? But Let's not promise, I don't know if it'll turn into anything. I, I mean, I know I want to talk to them. So I was like, I reached out and I said, look, we're going to record this conversation if, you, if you're open to it. And I don't know if it'll turn into a podcast or not. I really don't. Um, and they said, sure, let's, let's do that. And, and my hope was that more than they would guide people in what to think about abortion, that they would be able to share a little bit about what's at stake for people like us. And I think you'll find that this is 
that kind of conversation. It's like I said, it's not like any other conversation we've had. It's probably not like any conversation we're going to have. It's experimental. And I, I found it really valuable and I hope you do too. So without any further ado, this is me talking with Sean and Krista. I'm not going to give you their last names. I'm not going to give you their email addresses. I'm just going to tell you they're part of our community. And I think, uh, I think they're worth listening to. Sean and Krista, you are, in some ways, you, you know, I, I, I don't know if there is such a thing as a typical humanize me listener, but do you feel like typical humanize me listeners? I mean, I've been listening to you for a long time, so a couple of years did, now. How did you get connected in the first place? Um, some guy, Hank, on Log Brothers talked to you about you. Yeah. He had like a five, like top 10 podcast. I'm like, oh, wait, an ex pastor that talks about like living moral life after Christianity. I'm like, that sounds what I want to hear. So I've been listening to you since then. Wow. Thank you, Hank. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and Krista, like often when I talk to couples, one of them listens to the podcast and the other sort of goes, <laughs> like, why would you ever listen to that podcast? And so I'm just assuming you're the one that doesn't listen. <laughs> I'll, Sean will find a podcast that's like really good and he'll say, I think you'll really enjoy listening to this one. So I've heard a couple of your podcasts. I'm more of a reader than a listener. So I find podcasts a little harder for me because yeah. my mind tends to wander. What what kind of stuff do you read? Uh, <laughs> I read a lot of historical romance novels. <laughs> wow, you say that like it sounds like a confession to me. <laughs> it is because most people are like, "Oh, you're one of those people." <laughs> but I mean, in most genres, there's good and bad. Like, are there good yeah. historical romance novels? I found a couple of um, authors that I really enjoy, and then I'll do a bunch of the free ones through Kindle. And some of those, the spelling t errors and the grammatical mistakes, it just, I, I can't read them. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. I mean, the truth is that there is history and people did fall in love in all eras, right? Yep. So, yes. I mean, like this, this, this makes sense mm -hmm. that there would be people falling in love in all these different settings. Yes. Do they, what I've always wondered though is, is, my impression is that people who would fall in love a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago in some other setting would fall in love differently. But my, my guess, my, my sense has always been about historical romance novels that, that it's like they take the sort of like the sex in the city characters and they just transpose them all over history. Or, or do you, do you feel like the way that these people talk to each other and relate and the way that they, the feelings that they have when somebody like looks at their body or touches them. Do you feel like those things, they actually are able to move them from era to era? It, depends, like I, it depends on the author. Some authors are really good at incorporating like the true historical aspects of it. Whereas others are pretty much taking a modern day contemporary and throwing it back 200 years. Yeah. So the reason why I was asking about kind of who listens and who doesn't is because Sean then you, you Sean then sort of knows the the kind like the rhythm of the conversations and the kind of stuff 
that we do. And, you know, humanize me is many things, but it is not like ripped from the headlines. Like I don't get on and weigh in on today's news or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, and, and part of that is I don't have that capacity. I don't move that fast. But the other thing is, is that in some sense, especially these days, it feels like, you know, I always just think the, the artists always say first thought, best thought. But the more I watch our political discourse, I go like, actually, it might make good sense if you sat back and watched and thought a little bit about this and then expressed your thought. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, when we do talk about issues or experiences that are controversial or anything like that, it's usually never, like, in that moment. Um, it's it's upon reflection. Mm-hmm. And so, knowing that, I think, I think Sh- Sean reached out to me a while back and said, hey, the striking down of Roe versus Wade, which was so momentous and so for for most of the people I think that listen to our podcast, this is a really hard time. It was really mm-hmm. a, a, a painful and difficult thing. And and Sean, when you reached out, I got the sense that you were sort of saying like, hey, our our experience of what's happening right now is different than than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um because because we obviously we had our 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 um, termination and then Texas did the abortion ban the next day. Yeah. And all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, they're missing the point in this. And like, if we were down there, like this horrible thing would just be exponentially worse. So it was very personal, not political for us. And they're trying to take something that is a spectrum of colors and make it black and white, good versus evil. And it's nowhere near that simplistic. Abortion, termination is a very, very complex situation. And it's not a decision that anyone makes lightly, even when the end result is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, I think the main reason I wanted to talk to you was I just wanted to hear your story. Um, because it feels like the only thing I've seen that changes anybody's mind or helps mm-hmm. anybody to see things differently or stories. Um, you guys are a couple. When, when did you become a couple? How did you become a couple? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, a quick l- story for you. You want to say? <laughs> so we initially met in 2006 um, through our beach patrol. I had just graduated from high school and I just graduated from college. And our beach patrol decided that every lifeguard had to be a certified first responder. And Sean ended up being the instructor for my class. After the class, he wait, became wait, wait. my so lieutenant. One of, wait, wait. So one of you, what, like, Krista, were you a lifeguard at that time? We both were. Mm-hmm. You both worked on what beach patrol? Uh, Long Beach Township Beach Patrol on Long Beach Island, New Jersey. Oh, man, I had vacation there once when I was a kid. <laughs> what, which town? Oh, it was just LBI, as I remember. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, good. okay, so you guys were, so, so Chrissy, you're, are you out of high school or are you still in high school I at this time? I just, just graduated. Okay, so it's that summer. Yes. 
Oh, that's 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 a great summer, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And and and, and you, you get and, and so you have to take a a class. Yes, to become an emergency first responder, which is a step between basic first aid and EMT. Yeah, and I was teaching the class, and, and then um, she found out I was her lieutenant that year. Mm-hmm. And throughout the summer, pretty much every day, he would stop by my beach, and we would have these very philosophical conversations, um, and we got to know each other. And then it was towards the end of the summer, I think a week or two before I was to leave for college, when my sister, my younger sister, pulled him aside and said, "You like her." She likes you. Stop being stupid and ask her out. <laughs> so I asked her out and she said yes. Aww. <laughs> and then we broke up. <laughs> so so we, you, you went out a little bit that summer, but then you broke up? Yes. Yes. We dated for about two months, but Sean did not have a cell phone at that time. It was 2006 and he did not have a cell phone. So we could only talk when long distance was free, which meant weekends and after 9 p.m. So it made it difficult to stay in touch. And we decided in October that we would break up and we stayed friends. Fast forward to 2012. Or no, was it 2012? Uh, 2011. 2011. So May of 2011, I ended up taking a vacation before working for Beach Patrol. And Sean was down in Florida at that time. So I went down and we spent the week together. We reconnected and realized that we still had a lot of strong feelings for each other. But when I left Florida, after that vacation, we had decided long distance hadn't worked for us before. It's not going to work for us this time. And my friend told me I was stupid because I was in love with her. (laughs) So by the time I had made it back up to Delaware, we had made the decision to try long distance again. So we dated for two years. We dated for almost two years to the day. And distance was too much. We broke up. <laughs> yep. We broke up after two years. And I deleted her on Facebook. He just completely <laughs> deleted me from his life. Deleted my number from his phone. Blocked me on Facebook, I think. This wasn't um, nearly as amicable as the first yeah. time. Yeah. No. <laughs> five years later, without talking. Yep. We, we did not say a word to each other for five years. And then he sent me a Facebook friend request in January of 2018, 2019. Because I wonder what was happening and why we broke up. (laughs) (laughs) And I ignored the friend request for solid three months because I thought it was a hacker or some fake person. Because after all that time, there was no way he would actually be reaching out to me after five years of no communication. So in April, I ended up accepting his friend request. And then I waited two weeks to see if he would send a message or anything. I wasn't making the first move. (laughs) (laughs) So I finally texted him because I don't delete anybody's number from my phone. I'm one of those crazy people. And I say, hey, Sean, how's it going? Long time, no talk. And he responds with, hey, who's this? (laughs) He does not keep phone numbers in his phone. (laughs) No. And he was apparently in the middle of a workout. Uh, And I was like, do I even respond that it's me? 
And I weighed that for a solid 20 minutes. I was like, I guess I have to respond. (laughs) So I said, it's Krista. And he responds with just my last name, Jensen, how's it going? So we started talking. I was coming up to Jersey for a wedding. Yep. So we, since he was coming up to New Jersey, we decided that we would get together for dinner just to catch up over old times. And it was May 23rd. I'm really good with dates. And we ended up meeting at his family's house on Long Beach Island. And in the living room, there are two couches, one on either side of the room. And it was the most awkward, like, meet and greet, essentially. Middle school romance. Where we each sat on a separate couch. Wow. Yeah, wow. very awkward. <laughs> and, and, and that was that, that, that reconnect stuck? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, three months later to the day, we got engaged. And then on June 20th of 2020, we had our COVID wedding. And then a year later, we had a real wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, a real fake one. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so you're, yeah, like, I mean, that's a, that's a sweet story. But like, <laughs> um, you know, and, and if you took it back 200 years ago, I think we could make it a historical uh, romance. <laughs> but, but what you're telling me is that, you know, that, that last meeting that was it, it, when you were on the couches, that was in 2000, what? 19. Yep. Yeah. 2019. And you got married during COVID? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just backyard wedding. It was really nice. It was. Yeah. We had about 20 family members and that was it. And then, how long was it till you got pregnant? Oh, yeah. We, our first pregnancy was, we found out in September of 2020. We had decided that we wanted to start trying sooner rather than later. And so we started trying that summer and found out we were pregnant in September. Okay. I, I guess the thing I didn't know, even from after reading Sean's letter, um, is just how new you were as a couple when this mm-hmm. happened to you as a, yeah. as a, as a grown up adult married couple, you were just getting started. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think we have a strong foundation, but we're mm-hmm. still working out like kind of the, the dealing with each other type of thing. Yeah. Fine. Like we, we, we have that strong foundation of like loving each other, but just the minor small things you deal with marriage. I think we obviously still working on like everyone. So. Yeah. Well, and John, we each have and, our own quirks. <laughs> and Sean, yeah. ju- just because you're a humanize me listener, I sort of go like, you know, it's it's usually like at least a good 50-50 chance that you have some, that one or both of you has some like deep background in evangelical Christianity. That was my side. She didn't really <laughs> as much. <laughs> so did you grow up in that? I was a, grew up Catholic. I was an altar boy for 12 years. Um, we always went to church on Sundays. And then um, during high school, I started into a Baptist youth group, um, which was amazing. Everyone, my entire Christian upbringing was great. I loved the upbringing and the people I met and what we did. Um, got into college, joined the Christian Fellowship, which was also great. Um, got into something, um, Christian apologetics, reading like C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell. But eventually, I think I found like a an old monk, um, a Jesuit monk that talked about his faith and losing faith and um, the inconsistency with the New Testament. And once I read that, kind of broke my 
my belief structure. I'm like, well, if there's this much inconsistency, how can I believe? And overnight, I lost my faith. It wasn't just a gradual thing. It was a very quick overnight. So, that, as you know, in religion, it's a big part of who you are. And to lose it overnight was pretty hard. But that's 15 years ago now. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that 15 years ago means, th- am I right in thinking that by the time you start hitting on Krista as a lifeguard, <laughs> you're, you've already gone through that? Yes. Yes. That was about two years before. Yeah. And so that's your history, but like, it's not, it, that hasn't been operative in your relationship. No. No. Okay. So, and, and Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that you like, you know, sprang from the, from the head of Zeus as a pagan <laughs> and have never believed any of the supernatural stuff that Sean and I have wrestled with our whole lives. So growing up, I remember when I was a lot younger going to church we were Presbyterian and my older brother, who's six years older than me, when he started wrestling, a lot of his tournaments were on the weekend. So he stopped going and it never really played a big part in our lives. We always believed that there was a God, um, but it, it was weird. He was um, all powerful and mighty, but he wasn't nearly as important as wrestling. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> and then and then it became swimming and crew and right. soccer. It just wasn't as important as all the sports. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And and TV's <laughs> like that really. Yeah. That's it's tough on it, them. It, yep. it, it's weird because like that was such a big part of my life. When I talked to Krista about it, she's like, Yeah, I, I don't really think much about it. I'm like, what? <laughs> right. For you, like you're either all the way in or you're all the way out. Yeah, it's weird to have that middle ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so so you when you got married, you're a secular couple. Was there any conversation about why you were having kids or were you just like, ah, this is just natural. We just want to have kids. I have always wanted to have four kids, and I specify four kids because I have my own theory um, <laughs> for why that's the perfect number. But from as young as I can remember, I have always wanted to have kids. And even from I think the first time we dated, Sean knew that about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was just always a part of the package of Christmas. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. No, that, that it's it's funny that that's. I work with a lot of college students, and some of them, they really haven't given it much thought, and or some of them are adamantly against it, and you're sort of like, well, you know, just wait a minute, see how it plays out. But some of them. It's just, it is part of the package from the get-go. And Sean, when you, when you got married, were you like, I will suffer children in order to be married to this wonderful woman? I love your description. Or were you, or, or, or were you, were you excited about having kids too? I'm very hesitant about it because it's a lot of responsibility. Um, so yeah, I never really gave it much thought and I kind of just lived my entire life and it wasn't like a deep drawing passion like it was for Krista. I mean, I am excited, um, but it, that's another just difference. But I knew Krista, it's very important as well. So, so, so he so essentially you, just accepted his fate. <laughs> right. You sign on. No, I mean, like, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I have two kids and think, you know, I, I, I can't imagine my life without them in a positive way. I mean, they're just, 
they're so central to my life and, and that, now their spouses and their kids and all that stuff. But when I got married, it was, yeah, it was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I really want to marry Marty and like, that's part of the, part of the package. So yeah. like, I was okay with it. I remember saying to me like, when do you think you'll be ready to get, have kids? And I thought about it for a while and I realized like, I'm never going to say to you now, now I really want to have kids. I said, yeah. so it's, it's, so whenever you say, and she was like, okay, I'll see you in a few minutes. Because, um, <laughs> you later. know, by that, by, by the time she asked the question, she, she was, she was ready to, ready to start. Um, and so, yeah, so you get married and not that long into it, you're, you're pregnant. And how old are you, but when you, when you, at that point? I was 32. And um, 37, I guess. 36, 37. Yeah. Okay. 37. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're pregnant and at least one of you is excited. Yes. Very. I was extremely excited. Sean, I think was a little more just reserved, reserved and anxious and nervous. Yeah. And so what happened? So, um, I went to an eight week ultrasound appointment and Sean had to work so he could not make it. And I went in The technician was wonderful. Sean wasn't even allowed to go anyway because of COVID. And they start the eight-week ultrasound. And the first thing she points out is the heartbeat. And it's amazing to see your baby's heartbeat for the first time. And that's the first thing she points out. So I see the little heartbeat flickering. And she's like, wait, how far along are you again? And I knew exactly to the day when I had conceived because I was tracking So I said, I am eight weeks and two days pregnant. And she said, well, (laughs) the baby is only measuring about six weeks and the heartbeat is really slow, which means that there's a good chance you're going to miscarry. And it was just the hardest news to get. So I left and I went to my car and I just started crying and I called Sean and he's like, it's going to be fine. Everything will be fine. Me, I jumped to worst case scenario. I said, no, this baby isn't going to survive. There's no way. I was two weeks off in my dates. I know for a fact baby is eight weeks. The fact that the baby is measuring only six weeks, this is just a negative sign. I call both of my sisters and I'm crying hysterically to them. And they tell me to just take a deep breath. It'll all work out. Everything will be fine. And We scheduled a follow-up ultrasound for one week later, which happened to be Veterans Day because I was off. So I know that day. And we went to that appointment. And that morning, I just remember sitting on the couch beforehand crying. And I just knew that the baby was gone. So we went to that appointment. And they start the ultrasound. And the technician says, I'm so sorry. I can't find a heartbeat. And It was, I just cried. And I was like, I knew that this was going to be what you told us today, but it still hurts and it's still very painful. Yeah. And at that moment, it went from being referred to as a baby to a product, a product of conception. And hearing that language change was just another punch to the gut because to you, that's still your baby. It's not a product. Yeah. It's your baby that you've just lost. Hmm. And, and, and so 
Sean, you 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 were there too. That one, I think I couldn't. You were there for that one. Was that was the one right up the road. Okay. And yeah. so you find out, like, our baby is gone, and oh. and they're but they're, and and they're t- the did the way that they were talking about it, Krista, did it anger you or did it just hurt? Both. It was very anger provoking because it's almost like they were trying to say that it didn't matter that that baby's life was not important. It was just this random byproduct that you're now just going to throw into the trash. And it made me very angry and it was hurtful because to me, that was still my baby, my baby Mm. that I would never get a chance to meet my baby. I would never get a chance to hold because I had seen the heartbeat. It was real. That little baby was real. So in some ways I'm thinking, as I think with Roe v. Wade in mind, I'm thinking once the doctors pronounce that this child has no heartbeat, we're out of the abortion realm. It's just, uh, it's just a medical procedure. Like, you know, what, what do we do now? Um, yeah. And that was I, our first, first pregnancy with the abortion. I mean, the miscarriage, the second one was the abortion. Okay. So that, that's just how the first one ends. Yeah. Yes. And you go through the whole grieving loss, sort of all the, all the promise and potential that you were excited about just sort of goes away. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how long is it until you get pregnant again? Um, We found out two days after our one-year anniversary. So June 22nd of 2021, we found out we were pregnant. So from November to June, that's about seven, eight months. And, And had the doctors told you anything about the first pregnancy that led you to that, that made you do anything differently or, or, or where they were just like, Hey, this, you were just very unfortunate. Um, but there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing wrong in the, in the mechanics here. We can, we're, we're just going to try again. Um, I mean, it's still in the realm of normal pregnancy because it's a very high percentage, what 30 to 40% first trimester have miscarriages. So it's not like anything abnormal at that point. So. And they said that if we wanted to save the product when the baby passed naturally, we could have it tested, but they didn't really see the point in testing because it is so common and there aren't really any truly known reasons for natural miscarriages that early on. Okay. So yeah, just natural process. So when you got pregnant again, you thought like, well, we'll just hope we're, we're in the 70% this time and not the 30%. Mm-hmm. Yes. And right from seeing that very faint second pink line on the pregnancy test, my anxiety just ramped up because I, the miscarriage was awful. And that just kept replaying in my mind that I just don't want to miscarry. I don't want to miscarry. I don't want to lose another baby. And that was very hard to go through. And I said, I just need to get to eight weeks. If I can get to eight weeks and see a strong heartbeat, it's going to be smooth sailing after that. And? We got got to to eight weeks. weeks. We had the ultrasound and the baby's heartbeat was perfect. Everything looked great from what they could see. We thought we were doing well. Yeah. 
So um, at 10 weeks, we did the NIPTI, which is a non-invasive prenatal test. It's a simple blood test that looks at different um, chromosomal disorders, including trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, trisomy 18, and trisomy 13. And and then Turner's monosomy. So it does also look at sex chromosomes. So we could have found it found out the gender of the baby, and I did not want to know. And is uh, this and is this pretty standard operating procedure? Like, do most pregnant women get a get one of those tests? Most either do the NIPTI or they'll do the first trimester screening, which is very similar, just is a different name. The quad screening is what a lot of people call it, um, which looks at the same things. But for the quad screening, you do it a little later on in the pregnancy. The so NIPTI just re- is just earlier. I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, so this is just a routine screening? Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, and so I thought, you know, this is just going to come back. It's just a rule out. Nothing's going to come back. It's going to be fine. The ultrasound was great. It's just to, to have that peace of mind. So at 10 weeks, one day I went and they took about 10 vials of blood, which I don't do needles. So that was very difficult for me. <laughs> and exactly one week later, I'm driving in my car to meet my friend for lunch and the nurse from my doctor's office calls and starts asking, like, where are you? What are you doing? Are you somewhere that you can pull off to the side of the road? And when she started asking me these questions, I knew something had come up. She proceeds to tell me that the little girl I was pregnant with came back with a 50-50 chance of having Turner syndrome or monosomy X. And that's where instead of having two X chromosomes, she only has one. And that in most cases, 99% of pregnancies positive for Turner syndrome results in miscarriage by 13 weeks. And I, I don't know how I stayed on the road while driving. It was very hard and I'm just listening to what she's saying. And I told her, I need an ultrasound that day because... <clears throat> I need to know if my little girl has a heartbeat. I can't wait another day. And she was wonderful. She was able to get me in for that day in the evening. And I got off the phone with her and called my little sister because Sean was sleeping. And I asked her to look up Turner syndrome and get me as much information as she could find because I needed to know what was going on. And Turner syndrome, like a lot of other chromosomal disorders, it's a huge spectrum. There are two different types of monosomy X, one where it's mosaic, where it's in about 50% of cells, they have two X chromosomes, and the other 50, they have one, or there's full Turner syndrome where all of their cells have one X chromosome. So, so if we delivered, our child could be very mild needs for medical problems or very extensive as well. Mm-hmm. So. And, and this is, but, but if I'm understanding, like, if, if, if they've got... Like your your kid had a 50-50 chance of having that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And if they had it, if they if they were the 50% that have Turner syndrome, most of those kids get miscarried? Yes. 99%. But the, but the 1% that do come through with Turner syndrome come through with some with mild or not like relatively mild. Mm-hmm developmental problems, and some come through massively. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. Developmentally troubled. Yes. Some women with Turner syndrome are physicians and the only concerns that they have is with fertility. And so they just need some help with fertility for having kids. Whereas Mm -hmm. other individuals who survive with Turner's are more complex medically, physically, okay. and developmentally. So, so you don't yet know. You don't yet know at that point whether you're in the fifty percent that really has Turner syndrome or not. It definitely increased okay. chance, but we need more confirmation. Okay. Before we can make any decision. Okay. Yes. Yes. So that day, I went for the ultrasound. And I'm nervous. Sean was not able to come because he had to work again. And (laughs) that's the story of our lives. And so the technician pulls up the screen and there's my little girl moving around like crazy with a very strong heartbeat. And the technician says, oh, she is looking great. She's so active, very positive things. And I said, I felt this sense of relief. I'm like, we're in the 50% that does not. We're, it's just a false positive. Three days later, we were in Texas visiting Sean's family. And the nurse case manager calls me and says, we just got the results from your ultrasound on Monday. And there are a couple of markers for Turner syndrome including fluid behind the back of the neck, which it was so minuscule that the technician didn't notice it. And it could just be that it's still working on thinning out. And then there was high drops, which is, to my common knowledge, swelling in the abdomen. Yeah. And it's just a really bad prognosis. So So two two markers, that wasn't wasn't good news. Mm -hmm. Correct. So she asked if we wanted to do a chorionic villus sampling or a CVS where they would go in and take a sample of the placenta and test that for Turner syndrome. And it would be a pretty simple procedure. And we said, yes, we wanted to do this procedure. And it was scheduled for a week and a half, a week later, and which was my second day back at school. So during that time, Sean and I were talking. We decided to tell our parents about what was going on because it was such a difficult position to be in. And our parents were very supportive of whatever we did because they knew that we wanted a baby. They knew how important it was to us, but they knew that it was going to be a difficult road either way. Yeah, we didn't really want our our child to be permanently in the healthcare, (laughs) you know. Chronic yes. medical problems too, but anyways, go on. Yes. So a week and a half later, we go well, well, you to- know, before You know, before you go on, mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, because it sounds like you don't have enough information to know if your child yes. will be permanent healthcare and stuff, but like, how could you help but your mind to go there as a possibility? Mm-hmm. Mm. Exactly. So, so you're already into the realm of- trying to figure out what are the possibilities here? How how bad could it be? How good could it be? We had incomplete information at that time. Yeah, you just didn't know. And to make it even more challenging, I work in a school for students with low-incidence disabilities. 
So the students I work with are in wheelchairs. They're non-ambulatory. They have severe intellectual disabilities. They use augmentative means of communication, so they don't use their natural voice. They'll use eye blinks, eye gaze, communication devices, and they have significant medical needs. The majority have G-tubes or G-J tubes for feeding. And so I saw it from a firsthand experience, the amount of care that's needed throughout their day and the quality of life and how it took such a toll on the families. Mm. And it's not just you get them to 18 and they move out. You, they're with you for life. And it's a very difficult road. And I know none of the families of my students would ever take it for granted. And I love my students, but I could see how difficult it was for everybody involved, which just threw another layer onto all of this for me. Boy, that, that's a big other layer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's yes. a big other layer when I think about it, because I think there are so many situations where once a person exists, we're going to relate to them one way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when they're an idea in our mind, uh, we're going to relate to it a different way. Yes. Yeah. And, and our parents want their kids to grow up healthy and move out and do all the, you know, progress. So I think that's true. But I also think, Sean, that, you know, in, in the kind of the, the religious communities that I grew up in and, and some of the religious folks that I hear talking around this issue lately, are, there's, a, there's a kind of a very, very strong determination of like, hey, no matter what God gives me or no matter what kind of burden I have to bear, I will bear it. And, you you know, the Lord will strengthen me and the support will come. Like there's, I don't want to say it's, it's a blithe or a blind thing, but I think a lot of times when we're talking theoretically about taking care of special needs kids, we go like, listen, if that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. But then when you're around people that are doing it on a day in and day out basis, that kind of, kind of bravery you sometimes go like, yeah, it's, anyone can be brave for like a week, but it's really hard to be brave that way for the next 25 years. And, you, yeah. know, I, you know, we've watched marriages fall apart over this stuff. We've watched people have breakdowns, seen parents suicide over this stuff. Like, it's a heavy deal to take care of a child with those kinds of disabilities. And, and you, guys had, you, you guys had an insight into that. You'd you'd seen it firsthand. You know what it takes to take care of a kid like that. Yes. And I give the parents of my students so much credit. And it's just amazing seeing the strength that they have when they know that their child has a shortened lifespan and that their child will not get to do as many normal things. So we do try to make things as normal for our students as possible with a prom and having Santa come to the school for a visit by helicopter every year. But the families try to do as much as they can to make it as normal as well. And it's very difficult for them. And the strength that they demonstrate on a daily basis is amazing. Yeah. 
It's true. And, you know, and sometimes when people point that out to me, they point out the strength of these parents and the wonderful stuff, because I've known some parents like that and some educators like that. And I think I'm getting a new insight now as a, as a therapist, because sometimes I'm talking to the children whose parents did not step up, whose parents mm -hmm. bugged out, you know, who just left, mm -hmm. couldn't hack it one way or the other. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's kind of an unfair sample when you go to a school like yours on graduation day mm -hmm. and you go like, look, parents just, if, if, if this, if this happens, it doesn't break anybody. None of these families were broken. And I go like, yeah, the broken families, they're not there for you to look at. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Exactly. Hey, let's just take a quick break right now. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Katie. I am a behind the scenes producer of this very podcast. And if you would like a Humanize Me t-shirt or hoodie, they actually exist. Our merch is exclusively available to supporters of the show on Patreon. And you can check out all of the options at patreon.com backslash humanize me. This is just one of the many ways we try to thank those who make the show happen every month. So I'm like, I'm serious. Thank you. And back to the show. So, so you're weighing your, 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 your imagination is going crazy, but you still don't have any information. You don't still, you still don't have definitive information about what you're up against. Yeah. Correct. Not enough to make a decision. When do you get that? Um, so we went for the CVS, the Chorionic Villa sampling appointment at maternal fetal medicine on August 24th. And it starts with an ultrasound, a very in-depth ultrasound looking at all of the structures of the baby from top to bottom, the uterus, everything. And as the technician is, pulls it up for the first time, that little fluid pocket that they had seen just a week and a half before where it was not noticeable right. had grown to be as big as she was. And it was, as soon as they pulled it up, I knew that she was not okay. And she wasn't moving like she had been. And I thought that was the worst of it, just seeing that huge fluid pocket, which is one of the hallmark signs of Turner syndrome. So uh -huh. I'm just sitting there watching this and hearing the technician go through, well, there's a hand, there's a leg, there's a this. There's a that. And in my head, I'm just telling myself, but she's not okay. And after about an hour of an ultrasound, the technician says, okay, stay here. The doctor might want to do additional screening, um, but we'll be back. And as soon as she walked out, we just looked at each other and we knew that it was not going to be good news. And I'm trying not to cry which is really hard to do because um, I'm an emotional person. And about 20 minutes later, the doctor comes in and she tells me that I can sit up, um, that she doesn't need to take any more scans of anything. And she tells us that if we were to do the testing of the placenta, I would miscarry because the three layers of the amniotic sac, which are normally fused by that point, had still not begun to fuse together. 
which is a sign of chromosomal disorder. And she said, your little girl definitely has Turner's, but it's more than just Turner syndrome. I've never seen a case of Turner's like this before. And then the laundry list comes out. In addition to the three layers of the amniotic sac not fusing together, her skull had not fully closed. So her brain was getting sucked into that huge fluid pocket behind her. Her heart, they could only see one chamber, which by that point they should see at least the two halves, if not the four chambers. The blood flow through her heart was not right. Even with that one chamber, there wasn't the right arteries and veins. There was something wrong with her lungs. They couldn't exactly say what it was, but it was bright white and it should be gray. So there was something Just, wrong with her lungs. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a train wreck. Everything's going mm -hmm. wrong. Yes. Everything's bad. Yes. Um, her hands were double the size of the rest of her arms. They couldn't see the bottom half of her legs. It looked like they had almost fused together. The swelling in her abdomen was just extensive. And is her, telling, are, are, are they listing all of these things for you? Yes. yes. I mean, we kind of knew our decision point of that when she started telling us all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and knew it because you talked about it in advance or just knew it because you know each other? Uh, solidified it. It, we had talked a little bit about it. Um, if it was Turner syndrome, what we would do. And we, we had both kind of been back and forth on the fence about it. But once we had heard about her brain and her heart, that just solidified it because you can't survive without a brain. You can't survive with only one chamber of your heart. Yeah. And, and God forbid, if we do, if she does go to term, she's either going to stillbirth or a baby's just going to suffer for the couple of days that she lives. And that's not okay. Yeah. And yeah. it was just sitting there hearing the laundry list. I'm trying to do everything I can not to just cry. And I lost that. Uh, I just, tears just started pouring down my face. And the doctor was absolutely wonderful. And after she finished her list, she turned to the technician and said, was there anything I missed? And the technician said, something. I can't remember what there was something. And the doctor's like, oh, yes, there's that too. And it was just excruciating hearing everything that had gone wrong with our little girl and that we were going to lose her regardless of what decision we made, whether it was through a termination or through letting her run her course. But the thought to me was if I don't terminate, she could get to a point where she feels pain and I could not let her suffer for even a moment. And the doctor said, I don't know what your religious and moral beliefs are, um, but you have a couple of choices. You can wait a couple of weeks and do an amniocentesis. Or you can just go on and carry her until she passes, or you could terminate. And we just looked at each other, and we just knew that termination was the best option for our little girl because 
we knew that no matter what we did, losing her was going to be the end result. And why put her and put us through the trauma of waiting for her to die? So, you know, in in the world of Roe versus Wade and pro-rights and pro-life, pro-choice and all this stuff, at that point, sitting there in the office, you're this is our baby. This is, this is, this is a person. And it sounds like you're saying like, what was the, you were, you're sort of like, what's in the best interests of this person? Yes. Yes. That's really how it felt to you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. And you're, and you're sort of like, in the same way that a parent might look at their child and say, oh, you know, he's going to go through puberty soon, or, oh, she's going to have a growth spurt soon. You're going like, she's going to start to have nerves and feelings and, and, and be able to experience pain soon. Mm-hmm. And that would be her life if she and that, survived. That's all it would be. And so your driving concern was f- for her. And so you just like literally right there, you, you find out and you don't even make it out of the office before you look back at the doctor and go like, look, we're, we're going to terminate this pregnancy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, what state were you in? Delaware. Yeah, and so we were lucky. <laughs> and so at that moment, this is, this is, I forget the month and the year. August of 2021. This is August of 2021. So Roe versus Wade is still the law of the land, settled law. And, um, and you guys are making this decision in Delaware, which means that the doctor could offer you that opportunity, offer you that option and say, Hey, you could do this, you could do that, or you could terminate. Mm-hmm. And, and so that option was, was there for you. Yes. And, and Delaware has good reproductive rights. Um, terminations are allowed. They permit them. There's never been a ban on them. Yeah. And we're on the second trimester because that's the time that we got all the information appropriate for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're within, you're within, you're within that window. Um, even mm-hmm. in Delaware, presumably there's a point at which they're like, yeah, this is too late. Yes. I believe yeah. after 24 weeks is in Delaware when they said, although that could have changed recently. So y- how long is it? I mean, that must, that must have been really hard. It just doesn't begin to say it. Um, I, I think just hearing that laundry list of terrible things being applied to someone you care about, it, it must have just felt like thudding blow after thudding blow. So when it, when that doctor's appointment was over, had you made a plan? Had, had you, like, did you have a di- did, did they settle a time when they were going to do this? So my doctor's office did not perform terminations and the doctor at maternal fetal medicine who had given us the terrible news said that she would submit a referral to the practice that she knows where the doctors are willing to perform terminations and they would be in contact within the next day or two. So I think it was the next day we spoke with the doctor. Um, She called me and said, this is what we received. This is the referral we received for our termination. Is that still your plan? And when I said yes, she said, okay, we can schedule you for Tuesday. 
which I believe that was a Friday evening that she called me, a Friday after five, which was surprising. Um, so it was only a few days later that we had the, the termination. And, and so they made the appointment and you went in and this was a whole new set of doctors and people that you hadn't met before. Yes. Okay. Yes. And the way that they, um, their procedures work is the day before your procedure is scheduled, you come in for a consultation appointment where you sit down with the doctor who's going to perform the procedure. And she was absolutely wonderful, explained exactly what would happen. And she would have been willing to sit with us for hours on end and answer any questions that we had. And she just told us that we were doing the best decision that we could for our little girl. And it was hard sitting in that appointment talking about our little girl who the next day at that time would not be here anymore. Um, and she gave us the medication that I needed to start contractions before my procedure. And so the next morning we drive to the surgery center and the nurse comes out. She says the way that the procedures work, Sean can't come back with me to the like prep area, but they'll let him come back in recovery. And it was a very difficult, difficult day, but it was with doctors that we had never met before, um, nurses we had never seen before in a place I had never been before, but all of the staff there made it a little more bearable. They were very compassionate. And um, before, as soon as the anesthesiologist came out to put in the IV, that was when it kind of hit me what was going to happen. And I remember after the IV was put in, I just, inconsolable, I couldn't stop shaking and crying. And the nurse asked if I wanted my husband to come back. And I said, yes. So they made an accommodation for me um, because of how upset I was and how difficult that position I was in was. So Sean came back and we were talking and he shared that while I was brought back, he called a funeral home who agreed to cremate our daughter for us free of charge because of the situation. And the doctor came in and she just said, cry, you need to get it out. It's okay to cry because it's going to come out one way or another. Just let it out. It's okay. And when it was time to go back for the procedure, we walked down and they're trying to help me relax as much as possible. And we're talking about the Bridgerton series because I was reading one of the books. And when we get into the operating room, the first thing she does is introduce all of the staff members and what they're doing in there. And I just remember joking because when I'm nervous, I joke that it was nice to meet them. I wish it was under different circumstances and I'm sorry, but I probably won't remember their names. And they asked me to get up on the table and they're like, we have to strap your arms down so that you don't roll around. I'm like, okay, I'm a side sleeper. So that makes sense. You might need to use two straps because again, I'm nervous and I'm joking when I get nervous. And when the anesthesiologist comes to put me under, the doctor 
she stops preparing anything and she just held my hands until I was under, which that level of support was amazing to get because I know how many other things that she had to be doing at that time, but for her to stop preparing and focus on me and let me know that I wasn't alone in this and that she had me, that was very memorable. Very caring practice. <clears throat> no, it's, it's, it's been, it's been really interesting to me through the, through the politics of this summer. Um, I, I've listened to, to really wonderful abortion providers and I've listened to really wonderful crisis pregnancy center workers. You know, like, like you come to realize that if you listen to the right people in this conversation, that there are really some quite lovely people on all sides of the conversation. It, you know, it matters so much if somebody holds your hand or does something like that. And I, I mean, this is a really hard story. I'm really glad that around the edges of it are people being good to you. Yes. Yes. Now, now, I by this, got very by this lucky. Time, by this time, your parents know that, that your parents knew that you were heading in for this, right? Like, the, did did your did your circle close circle of support was everybody up to speed on what was happening that Tuesday? Yes, all of our family knew. <clears throat> um, our parents were extremely supportive, and they felt awful for what we were going through. My sisters were wonderful. My brother was supportive. His brother and sister were included. Um, so every, I mean, everybody was great. Yeah, mm -hmm. you, you weren't you you weren't you weren't hanging out there all by yourself. Yeah, no. we're, we're lucky we have good support system. Yeah, we and have so a, a huge support system. They put you under. Mm -hmm. and they do the procedure, and and you wake up with Sean in the room. No. No, he was not in the room. I remember coming out. I was so cold. I was shivering uncontrollably. And I just remember them telling me that I had to wake up. That nurse was not the nicest. She's like, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. I'm like, I need Sean. I need Sean. And she's like, "You can. he can come back, but you need to wake up first. And she was getting angry with me for not just quickly coming out of anesthesia and just saying like, I need Sean. But eventually she did bring him in. And I just remember crying and saying, she's gone. And then they're like, you need to eat. You need to drink so that you can leave. And I'm like, I don't want to eat. I don't want to drink. I just, I just want to grieve, <laughs> yeah. which was so, difficult. So everybody was wonderful up until the procedure. And then on the other side, the folks didn't have nearly as good a manner. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. And I'm not sure if she just didn't know the procedure that I had had um, and why I was having it. And that was why, um, because it was a different nurse who was doing recovery than the prep area. So it could be that she just didn't realize why I was so distraught. Um, I think it was still nice though that I was able to come back. She was still fairly sedated at that point. So it was nice to be at least there when she's waking up, mm -hmm. which I appreciate at least. And then was that the beginning of getting back to your life? Like, did, like, did, did you start to heal immediately or were, was there, did you dip after the procedure? Um, 
I did not heal immediately. The day after my procedure is when Texas initially announced their abortion ban, which put me into a spiral even worse than I was already in. So is this and pre this is pre Roe versus Wade? Yes. yes. This was okay. their very initial announcement of the six week heartbeat ban um, last September first. So Texas and announces that the past six weeks, they're not doing any abortions? Yeah. Yes. So, so once you find out you're pregnant, you can't abort, basically. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was the day after my termination. So I was sitting on the couch, barely able to talk because my throat was raw from the breathing tube they had put in. And my body was just physically sore everywhere. And I see this on Facebook and it just... It made me feel like a villain seeing that because they're making it seem like you're evil for terminating a pregnancy. And that's so far from the truth. And I was so angry. I I think it was more of rage. Um, I was filled with rage for a while and numbness. Yeah. And. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I think that was the same emotion with me once I found out just anger because this they're turning a black and white issue. Uh, they're, they're turning a gray issue into something black and white. And at least in our circumstance, it was nowhere near black and white. It was a very gray matter. And therefore you need a choice. Yeah. Um, so for, I would say about two months, I was numb and completely full of rage. Um, I did not process it. I went back to work only a few days after having the procedure. And I kind of hid in my office because in my head, I couldn't reconcile the fact that I claim to love working with the students that I do who have these significant needs. But on the other hand, I did not want to have a child who would potentially be a student in my school. And that was difficult. And then it was on Halloween. When I was trying to hand out candy, and I just kept thinking, I should be this far along in my pregnancy, or I should have an infant if the baby I had miscarried hadn't I hadn't lost. And my older sister, who was pregnant at the time, sent me a picture with her pregnancy belly, and I just I lost it. I just couldn't. I was trying to hand out candy. And I can't stop the tears from flowing completely inconsolable. And the next day, I remember reaching out to one of my coworkers and saying, I think I'm going to take a leave from work because I'm not okay. This is why I'm not okay. Is it, is it okay if I take time off of work? And she told me, you need to do what's best for you because nobody else is going to do that for you. And so I reached out to my HR people and I said, this is what the situation is. I've had two losses in less than a year. This last one has really taken a lot out of me. I'm not doing well and I need to, I need to be doing better. So I took 10 weeks off from work during which time I saw it out a psychologist and I was doing weekly to bi-weekly appointments depending on our schedules. And I joined a couple of different 
virtual support groups and one specifically for women who had gone through terminations for medical reasons. And it was a wonderful support group. And through that, I started to heal. There are still days even now where I just feel heavy and I feel more emotional because I'm thinking about my daughter and how the only way I will ever hold her is in her urn or in the jewelry that I had made with her ashes and how much I wish I could just hold her and see her because that's what you want. You want to be able to hold your baby. Yeah. And, and I think that what I'm struck by is that you're keeping your baby's ashes in an urn. Like you're not arguing that this wasn't a human being. You're sort of saying like, no, this was our daughter. And in a sense, we made the best decision for her. Yes. I certainly, some of the things that I've seen in life, I can certainly imagine making that decision much later in the game. I can imagine making that decision about a, a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old if, 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 if you saw that the prospects of their life was you know, nothing but pain. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make for good cocktail party conversation. <laughs> say you can imagine that. But, yeah. but what's interesting to me in this moment now is you made that decision and it doesn't really feel like it was much of a decision. Um, no. And, and yet you know that had you been in Texas a day later, that decision wouldn't have been on the table for you. Correct. And I think it's going to hurt the people that are disadvantaged more because it's not going to stop it. It's just going to make people travel. And the people that don't have the finances to cross state lines is going to hurt them even more. And this this situation was so hard for us. It's just going to make it not exponentially worse for people that have to go through the similar thing that we did. It makes you feel like you're doing something wrong when it's not wrong. Everyone will make a different decision in our thing, but that's okay. Like people in our circumstances, like if someone else had that same thing, they might have chosen a different different path, might have not terminated, um, and then either had a stillbirth or the, the child that lived for a couple of days. But I think that has to be an individual decision with the parents and the provider that you have. For us, without a doubt, it was the right decision for us. From what we and, saw. And it would have been infinitely more painful if you would have had to jump through a thousand hoops to get it done. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So how many, how, how long ago was that? Not even a year ago. It was last mm-hmm. August 31st. Last August. And, mm-hmm. and so in between that time, we've had this, you know, change, change in the weather here. Mm-hmm. Um, changing the situation. And I guess what, what's been your conversation over this summer? What, what are you guys talking about? I think it's, it's anger and frustration, at least on my end. And it's, it's, it's hard because you can't do anything about it. And just like you were saying in the beginning, like I, we can't change the politics, but maybe we can change the narrative. And that's why we at least want to tell our story. So I think that's the best thing you can do. Yeah. And I would definitely say it's the Mm -hmm. anger and the frustration at the, at individuals who are unwilling to 
understand reproduction in general. Um, like individuals who think you can just take an ectopic pregnancy out and relocate it. That's impossible. You can't do that. There's, there's no way to do that. And they're, they're not using the science to guide these decisions. They're using their religious and moral beliefs and trying to say like, we're, we're on the moral high ground by saying every heartbeat matters, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Yeah. I remember looking at like the, the people that passed the Texas abortion ban and um, just kind of frustrated because like in the back of my mind, I, I can think of them being like, oh, we're, we're the Christian, the superiority, moral superiority, but not realizing the damage that they've done based on their thought that they're doing something morally superior and keeping babies alive and stop killing babies. Yeah. I mean, there's something about even the way people win, like to be gleeful about winning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and I understand like we've saved all these lives, but there doesn't seem to be a realization that some of the lives that we've saved are going to be very, very painful ones. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the parents that we're forcing to have children are yeah. going to be horrible parents and there's going to be suffering and there's going to be abuse and there's going to be sadness. Um, yeah. and, and you might still believe like, well, that's just the price of doing the right thing. But you, you, you feel like there should be a soberness about it where you just go like, yeah, the, we're not happy. Like we've won and we're happy to have won, but we're not happy that there's anybody out there having a difficult pregnancy. Yeah, it's like a pro-birth, but forgets to realize the complexity of the issue. And it's yeah. okay for things to be complex. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way of saying it. Like, I understand what it's like to believe something for religious reasons. Obviously, I understand that. Um, <laughs> been there, done that. <laughs> and so... I, I understand why somebody on the other side goes like, I don't care. Like we have no right. That's a, that's a life. And even, and, and, and you, even as a parent, you don't get to decide on the quality of your kid's life. You mm -hmm. don't get to decide that that kid doesn't deserve to live. Like I, I don't agree with it, but I understand it. Yeah. What I guess has hurt me almost as much as anything this, this summer has been the tone is I, I just feel like you just shouldn't talk with this level of certainty or with this level of enthusiasm or excitement mm -hmm. about things that are really just trafficking in other people's tragedies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that, you know, the pro choice folks, they talk about it in such a way that it makes it sound like it's no big deal. Yeah. It What's the line? It should be legal, safe, and rare. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I listen to your story, I don't go like, wow, abortion. That seems like, you know, I mean, don't worry about getting pregnant because if you do, you can always get one of them. And I go like, hey. yeah. I mean, I, and I know that part of the reason yours was so painful had to do with your dreams and your your desire and and your situation. But I also know that people often underestimate whether it's ankle surgery 
or anything else, they often underestimate or, or taking psychotropic drugs. Mm-hmm. They, they underestimate how impactful messing with your body can be to your mental health. One thing I will say as I listen to you is like, just hearing you tell the story, I mean, it seems very clear to me that while this has been a hugely painful, it, it's really clear to me that you're, you're clear-headed and clear-hearted at the stage in the game that you that you, that this hasn't destroyed something essential to the fabric of your marriage. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. There there have definitely been times where we've struggled because we don't grieve the same way. Mm. And that's been probably our biggest challenge um because Sean working in an ER as a physician assistant, he deals with death more regularly than I do. And so he's, for lack of a better phrase, used to it. Like understand, like understanding that bad things happen. And I mean, you don't want it on anyone, but you understand that bad things happen. And it was terrible uh, to see. But I think that one of the big things that hurt me too is just watching her suffer as well. And like, it's not, she's not a patient. She's my wife. And that, that was hard. Yeah. So we've, it has not been easy, um, but we've worked through it mostly together. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's definitely better than it was back in November. I don't know if you see it, but like, it, it seems to me that like when tragedy or hardship happens, like couples either break apart or they grow stronger together. And we have some hope and at least we got this far, hopefully just continue getting stronger. So, you know, and also, I mean, I have to be honest, like this is a lot to take in your first couple of years of marriage, you know, like, mm-hmm. Hey, we got married and then there's, you know, and we got married in COVID and then this, <laughs> yep. like, this has not mm-hmm. been an easy start. And you go like, well, it's okay. Cause we have these really, you know, I'm a surf instructor and he's a, you know, a, 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 a circus clown and you're like oh Mm -hmm. no 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 actually he's an er you know worker and i'm working with kids with huge developmental disabilities Mm -hmm. and like ah you guys are not having an easy sled here nope (laughs) what what do you think what do you think comes next for you what what are you thinking about with this i I mean are you are you going to try again or is it too soon to know well, we've got 10 weeks until our, um, our rainbow arrives. baby arrives. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell we're doing this without uh, cameras? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 30 weeks yes. now. <laughs> You're at 30 weeks and you got a health, so far a healthy pregnancy. Yes. Um, this oh. little one, we don't know, boy, girl, we want it to be a surprise. I could, I joke with everybody when they're like, how can you not stand to know. I'm like, I could look it up at any moment on the application on my phone and find out lickety split, whether it's a boy or girl, that doesn't matter to me. All that matters is that this little one is healthy. And so far- X and Y chromosomes are where they're supposed to be so far. Yep. All of the tests so far have been great. Um, Everything's come back normal for any kind of chromosomal things. Our scans have been great. So- a very different pregnancy. Yes. It's, it's, although <sighs> this one has definitely been racked by 
tons of anxiety <laughs> about everything. <laughs> Can't imagine why. Um, wow. I'm so happy to hear that. I'm just Thanks. so happy to hear that. And thank you. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm also a parent, so I could tell you like, you know, uh, the, the, the anxiety doesn't end on the day that they're born, um, you know, and, and that's the thing is like, I know that we're evolutionarily hardwired to want to project life forward. You know, you don't really need to give a reason for why you wanted to have four. I mean, I know you have reasons, but you don't need to give them. Thank you. We're, we are hardwired to, 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 you know, from the moment we have life, there's a part of us that is dedicated to projecting our life forward, our DNA forward, you know, and, and, and there will come moments in your life where you'll realize like, oh, I would gladly give up my own life for the sake of this life, which is another way of saying for life, you know, like there's something bigger than me. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in the same way that like we need to eat, so we're hardwired to enjoy eating we need to reproduce. And so there are all sorts of like warm and beautiful feelings associated with reproducing. It's it, but it's hard. Life is hard mm -hmm. and raising kids is hard. But what I do know is, is that I'm really glad that you have each other to go through this with and, and to share this experience that you're going to have too. Um, the longer I'm at this, the more I, I'm, I feel like anybody that has a partner that sticks with them through a hard time really needs to be aware that, that that's not only something to be grateful for, but that's also something to kind of marvel at because it is not, it is not everybody's experience. Mm -hmm. Sad, but true. You guys are, you know, you call your baby, what did you call it, a rainbow baby? <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it's, it's like the rainbow after a storm. Yeah. So it's the subsequent pregnancy after a loss. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, in some ways you're a rainbow couple, <laughs> you know, because here you are, um, here you are talking to each other and talking with me, um, with, with love in your heart and with, and with purpose. And, and I just like, that's, that's not a given when people go mm -hmm. through this stuff. No, so I, I just want to thank you for, for, for talking with me. Thank you yeah. so much for doing this and talking to us. We yes. really appreciate it. Yes. Thank and, and you. When that baby's born, we, we, we send me a picture. I, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I just, I just want to know. Um, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> so, have you got names figured out on either side yet? I was thinking Bart. <laughs> <laughs> Never tell anybody your names before you have a child. <laughs> People feel this crazy freedom to comment on your names when they're just theoretical. Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, you know, and, and it's like, I, I wasn't looking for that, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, no, Sean's thrown out a couple of really crazy names and I just veto them. <laughs> to me, it's like, because I've had two losses and my anxiety won't let me believe that I will actually be leaving the hospital with a baby. I can't think yeah. of names. It's just this mental block that until the baby arrives healthy, I can't think of a name because that's almost jinxing it. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I, it's, it's funny in the old days, you know, and, and, and Christy, you, you, you didn't grow up in this world, so you don't know what it's like. Like <laughs> there's just this knee jerk reaction that I, that, that people like me have is like, Oh, I, I'll be praying for you. Um, you know, and people, it, and I realized in some ways that it was kind of a fun way to end a conversation because it was a sort of a way of saying like, you know, um, I'm going to do something, I'm going to put something in the bank for you, or I'm going to, I'm going to do something that might have a good impact on you. I'm going to mm-hmm. send a blessing your way. And, uh, and, and what I, I find myself wanting to say to you now is I'm just doggone grateful for you. Um, and grateful for your love for each other and grateful for the people that took care of you when you needed taken care of. I will be thinking about you with great hope on your behalf and I will be thrilled to hear from you. Thank you, Bart. We will send you a picture. Yes. Thank you. Do it. <laughs> All right, you guys. I always say I've been listening to you a long time. I trust you. <laughs> hey, thanks. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you. Yeah. And Krista, there's some really good shows. You really ought to listen to them. <laughs> no, All right. So that was something that was uh that's experimental podcasting where you, you go into the conversation and you don't really know where it's going to go. Um, you know, a lot of times as an interviewer or just as a, as a human being, I do have an agenda. I'm trying to steer a conversation where I wanted to go, whether that's with my kids or my wife or friends, clients. And I don't think it's always bad to steer a conversation, but I always remember that scene from The Big Kahuna where Danny DeVito says, he's talking to some young Christian who's been trying to witness to him. And he says, listen, when you talk to somebody and you lay your hands on the conversation and try to steer it in some particular direction, you're no longer a human being. You're a salesman. And... It doesn't matter what you're selling. That's a different relationship. And so and I hope that was a good conversation because I sure as heck wasn't trying to lay my hands on it. And I, I'm just so grateful to Sean and to Krista for talking to me. And I'm grateful to you for being the kind of people that want to go on the journey with me to try to figure out how we can make the most of this life by becoming really good lovers of other people and really good lovers of ourselves and really good lovers of life itself. So here's to the lovers. Have a great day. I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. To hear an exclusive extra episode every month, please go to patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get Bart's monthly newsletter over there and get access to some great Humanize Me merch. Our supporters on Patreon are the ones making this show happen. For more information on Bart, go to bartcampolo.org. Also, if you choose to listen to the podcast on Spotify, we have a listener poll that you can take part in every episode, including this one. So join us on Spotify. Humanize Me is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. You could be larger than life
end of the credits beginning of the thank yous the best part of the podcast for some of us so fire away john who we got we'd like to thank ruby newman sarah johnson stop stop right there stop okay if we know somebody we're gonna say something and (laughs) if we don't know you yet just like if you didn't like the way you got thanked like just send an email say like could you thank me again but let me tell you something. I'm a school teacher in Wyoming. Or let me tell you something. Like I, you know, I once juggled seven balls. You know, like whatever it is. Like <laughs> the more we know, the more excited we are to have you. But like you know, Ruby Newman is one of those dear, like sincere followers of Jesus who cannot give up the faith, even though she's pretty sure there's some serious holes in the story. Um but just loves Jesus and loves anybody that's doing something good in the world, even if the, that person is pagan as the day is long, like you and me. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I just, in a world as polarized as ours, it means so much to have a genuine friend and a genuine supporter, somebody who doesn't just think like, well, I'll keep talking to you until I can show you how wrong you are. But somebody just goes like, look, you're doing you're doing something good from a different angle and I, I'm, I'm behind you. And so I, I just, I love having Ruby on the team. That's Thank so cool. you, Ruby. Yeah. Yeah. Way, way, way cool. And then did you say Sarah Johnson? Sarah Johnson. There's very few people I know in this world who are more simpatico with the vibe of this podcast than Sarah Johnson. Um, and so... I'm equally excited to have Sarah Johnson, who I love dearly, in this in this in this gang. Scott Gillespie, Scott Reinert, Sig Tregard. Oh, he's a, he's an old friend, and you know, and and again, every now and then an episode hits him just right, and he writes and says that what he liked, and you know. Sig, and, and you know, and his wife Nancy, who is also just a lovely, lovely human being. Um, all right, so a couple more, Bart. I'd like to also thank Stephen Tuscan, and finally for today, Scott Robertson. I would like to thank Stephen and Scott, and all the others too, like all of you. Like it's it's a big deal. It's a big deal, and know that know that John and I do not, and and or Katie, that we, that we do not take any of this lightly. You're, 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 what's the word? Appreciated you're, and loved. Yeah, you're appreciated. Yeah, you're, you're, you're appreciated. And hopefully now you feel a little bit recognized. <laughs>